1975, Jaws was released. It is routinely regarded as one of the greatest films of all time and is generally credited with creating the concept of the summer blockbuster. In 1978, in an obvious cash grab, Jaws 2 was released, failing to have lightning strike a second time, but presenting a generally enjoyable film. In 1983, Jaws 3D was released, shamelessly attempting to take advantage of a gullible audience. By 1987, there was no pretense of quality as Lorraine Gary and Michael Caine cashed paychecks for sleepwalking through a pointless and incredulous sequel. In 2016, Paul Spatero created Is It Jaws, in which he and a group of rotating guest hosts discuss new and old movies and place them up against the Jaws scale, which ignores some elements of the actual films and sets forth a rating scale. Jaws, an all-time great classic film. Jaws 2, an enjoyable film with some flaws but worthy of multiple viewings. Jaws 3, a moderately enjoyable film. And finally, Jaws 4, a bad movie. Please join Paul and his guests as they ask the ever-important question, Is it Jaws? One, two, three, four! This year, they're in movie theaters everywhere. Here's Josie and the Pussycats. I'm a punk rock prom queen. Brown paper magazine. Hotter than you've ever seen. Everywhere in between. Josie. 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 Is that Josie? Oh. Josie and the Pussycats, coming soon, only in theaters. Hello everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours? I'm Paul Spataro, and after, I guess, quite a long layoff, uh, Blaine Dowler is back with me. How you doing, Blaine? I'm doing well. How about you? Doing pretty good. It's uh, 
it's early in the morning here and it's way way earlier where you are so uh, in comparison I'm doing really good and I'm, and I'm wide awake uh, just yeah for me it's exactly 5 a.m. I've been up an hour <laughs> well that's I guess you know when especially well you always were up early but uh, you know especially with a one-year-old at home I think it's easy to have your time schedule really crunched uh, I'm gonna pull back the curtain for a second and and say that uh, we were supposed to record today with a third party and we were supposed to record a different movie uh, but we had also talked about doing the movie we're doing today as kind of an extra recording so with the change in schedule we're just doing that movie today and that movie is uh, the 2001 adapt film ad adaptation of Josie and the Pussycats uh, which was Blaine's suggestion I had never seen this movie, and I went out of my way to see it because of the suggestion. But I'm going to start right off with, why did you suggest this? Uh, this actually goes back to back to the bins when you were polling your listeners about the top comic book films that, in their opinions, to do your uh, was it a top fifty countdown or just a top thirty? I forget what the uh, countdown was, but I, it was a multi-part series. Yeah, I, I think what I did was I had everybody give me their top five in order, and the order was important because I uh, assigned a point to it based on where... Or it might have been top ten. I'm not even sure. Yeah, I'm uh, confident it was top ten for that. Yeah, so, I so I ranked... down as my number nine. I, I assigned uh, them points based on, uh, you know, your number ten pick got one point, your number nine pick got two points, so on and so forth, and then I added up the points and came up with the list so there wasn't an actual number that I intended to hit as far as the number of films but I wanted to get just an overall feel for you know how how everything ranked so I had let everybody know it's important to not just say oh in any order <laughs> you know that that the order you put them in was significant as far as the show went and I think we did three or four back to the bins episodes counting down from the highest both from the lowest rank to the highest, uh, I would suspect that this one didn't get a lot of votes. And, and I'm not even saying that necessarily based on quality. I'm saying it based on exposure. I don't think this movie would have been you know, nearly as well known to the general audience because I think this one has flown under the radar for a lot of people. Yeah, I would agree. And that's, that's part of the reason I said, well, let's talk about it. Not only because in that conversation you realize that you or you revealed that you hadn't seen it. But because I found it's underrated, and when I say underrated, I mean, most people hear there's a Josie and the Pussycats movie, that's got to be Jaws 4. And I'm not going to tip my hand too much, aside from saying it's not Jaws 4. And I'm, I'm going to join you, having not seen it, and I'll, I'll even, you know, say that I, I can't say I was really enthusiastic, but it is not a Jaws 4, I agree. Uh, you know, my, my exposure... To Josie and the Pussycats, like most people, would have been from the cartoon, uh, which was, I know it's in the Archieverse, but it was very Scooby-Doo in the way it was presented. And I guess, I believe they were both Hanna-Barbera. They were, and this was supposed to be the first in a series of movies that took the Hanna-Barbera properties of the 70s and made them a little more adult to appeal to those Hanna-Barbera people now that they were adults. And this didn't do super well at the box office, which is why the second film in that series, the first Scooby-Doo feature, was cut from so that it went from PG-13 to a PG rating. 
Hmm, interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is not definitely not something where you say, oh, you know, you got to be an adult to watch it. But it is more suggestive than uh, than the cartoons were, certainly. Uh, it's I, the big thing I found about this is it, it really was, you know, just a a, a not a not very well veiled uh, take on consumerism, and, and that that is more than we get from Josie and the Pussycats, the cartoon. I have to give it that. Yeah, this has an actual message. Like you said, it's not a very subtle message, but there's an actual message here. And and one of the interesting things is that. Uh, for all the consumerism in it, there were no sponsors as far as the product placement went. Nobody paid to have their product shown, and there are products you know, littered in, through this entire movie. So I, I thought that was interesting. I guess they didn't want to... Either the, either the product people weren't willing to pay, or they wanted to be able to you know, make their own message without having to be answerable to anybody. But I, apparently everybody signed off because I think, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, I believe it's a dual process that one, you know, you could charge them to show your th their things, but two, if you're showing their things, I think you have to have their permission to show it. Generally, yeah, um, at the very least, just to, to keep the peace and keep them happy because otherwise they're not going to do product placement with studios. Um, I, they talk about the process a little more in an episode of Wild Wild Tech because there's a particular tech company that refuses to allow their product to be used on screen by the villains of a film. So oh. I don't want to name it here because when I learned that, I realized it just spoiled several dozen movies at once. Because if, you know, someone pulls out this particular brand of product, you know they're not the bad guy. That's interesting. And, and I, I, I'm glad you decided not to say it because there's already too many things to take me out of movies and my whole thing is I do want to immerse myself when I watch them. So thank you for not sharing. Thank you for sharing while not sharing. So how did you first see this? Uh, I actually picked up the DVD back when it seemed like a reasonable goal for someone. Actually, at the time, I wasn't even planning to be a teacher yet. I was still planning to be a physics researcher, but the salaries there are a little bit lower than the average teaching salaries. So I picked it up when I thought it was going to be feasible for me to be able to afford every comic book adaptation out there on DVD, just to sort of fill out that part of the collection. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, just watched it at random on, on a day as just something to have on in the background. That's that's actually kind of interesting, and, and it, it does speak to the completest nature of people of our ilk. <laughs> you feel the need to get every comic book movie. Uh, I, I think I think most of the people who would be listening to this can relate. Uh, were you familiar with the cartoon to speak of? No, I wasn't. I was born in the late 1970s, so I had, you know, kind of missed the apex of the cartoon. Because I think that came out mid-70s. Yeah. And I think actually, I, I thought it was the early 70s, but I could be wrong. Because uh, mid-70s, you know, I would have been a little older. And I'm, you know, I, I am familiar with it. I can't say I was ever a devotee of the car cartoon. I was, I did 
at one point regularly watched Scooby-Doo as a kid. Uh, and this kind of was like an offshoot to it. They'd have, you know, the same similar type mysteries. They had sim a similar type uh, dynamic in the group. Uh, you know, the only difference is they'd add the, the song in there, which, you know, I could take or leave as a kid. Uh, but I, you know, I was familiar with it. I was familiar with the characters and, and the, you know, the kind of the, the standard model that they'd have for episodes. And it was all cool for me. Uh, I, you know, I was good with it. Uh, what I was a little bit impressed with as far as this goes is that they didn't, they didn't really go too far from the general setup. You know, you had all the main characters, uh, I, I was impressed that they managed to work in Alex and Alexandra, uh, even though they are a little different from the way they are in the comic, in the cartoon, rather. But it did feel like kind of a true adaptation for the most part. Yeah, and they don't take themselves terribly seriously. So at one point, someone actually questions why Alexandra's going with them when they're flying out to, to the, the coast to be these major stars. And she flat out says, I'm here because I was in the comic. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think there's a lot like that. Uh, you know, it, again, it, it, I think there's a lot of talk about uh, or a lot of uh, commentary on consumerism, but not only of products, but also of music, you know, not that music isn't a product, but, you know, music as opposed to physical products. Uh, and I, I've always kind of had that feeling like when when somebody is famous all of a sudden people are attracted to them uh you know if, if you had two people who there is no objective beauty obviously but if you had two people who look very very similar and one is famous and one isn't people are just going to be attracted to the famous one <laughs> it, it, it's just you know it's it's the nature of the beast uh so, so you have that kind of as, as a subliminal thing that happens in people's minds to begin with. And then they're adding the actual subliminal, you know, it's an oversimplification. But then in the background, they're saying, oh, they're the best. This is the best. You need to do this. You need to do that. And people are actually doing it. And I know there was a whole controversy about the subliminal messages, you know, in, in movie theaters that they used to say, uh, you know, every whatever number of frames they put a, a thing like drink coke or something like that so that people would go and, and buy the uh the product i don't know if that was ever reality or if that's just apocryphal but i, I remember hearing those stories as a kid yeah there actually was an experiment in movie theaters where they did that they put in that sales of that product did increase the practice was eventually made illegal but they've done a lot more detailed research in the subliminal messaging. And what they're finding is that, you know, if they use your example of Coke, if they flashed, you know, buy Coke, they found in the long term, they weren't actually selling more drinks. They were just helping people choose Coke instead of the competitors. So it wasn't increasing the overall sales in the concession. It was just driving people to one particular choice if they were going to get a drink anyway. Hmm, that's that's actually interesting because I always got the impression. Well, I mean, obviously their goal would have been to sell more of that particular product, but I guess it didn't necessarily work the way they thought it would. So, uh, 
And and I guess, you know, in a movie theater, I don't think, you, you know, like you don't have a choice of, oh, I'll have Coke and not Pepsi or the other way around. It's, you know, it's whatever they're selling and that's it. You yeah, know? they're it's generally the the one product line, the, the the brand loyalty. I worked in a movie theater for three years, you know, last year of high school, first two years of university. But this would say, you know, you'd get the cola instead of the, the citrus or the root beer. Right, I guess that makes sense. But even then, you know, they're charging the same price for those things. And I remember that, you know, that was one of the first things in, you know, in economics class where they would talk about, you know, how much do, you know, the soda that you buy in, you know, back then it was probably for a dollar fifty. The soda you buy for a dollar fifty, what do you think it costs them? <laughs> you know, they'd go through all the, the machinations and what, what it took for them to to put it together. It's like, you know, when they added it all together, it was like five cents. And it was like... I just remember people being outraged in the class when they learned that. Yeah, having worked in movie theater and gotten into the management scene a lot more, that's because concession, at, at least in the, the 90s, we weren't able to keep enough of the box office dollar because most of that went back to the studios, the directors, the stars, the distributors and whatnot. We could not keep enough of the box office dollar to pay the bills. So we could sell out every seat in every theater all night and still lose money unless people came to concession. Yeah, so that, the concession markup was covering rent and power and everything else too. And I remember in the uh, early two thousands, in you know, early to mid two thousands, uh, I had my cable provider was Cablevision, and they, you know, they owned theaters, small the smaller theaters, you know, in the in the area, and they had a promotion that if you were a subscriber to their service. Uh, you could sign up for their, you know, membership in in their Optimum Club or whatever they called it, which was free with your subscription. And one of the bonuses from that is if you went to one of their theaters on a Tuesday night, up to four people were admitted free. Which to me spoke volumes of how much they valued the concessions dollar over the box office dollar. So, uh... What did you think of the casting in the movie? Um, I actually found it went, you know, it, it worked out fairly well. These people were a good fit for their roles, I found. Again, coming in, not really familiar with the cartoon. And having read Archie as a child, but not a lot since age 10. So I wasn't super familiar with the characters coming in. So I can't tell you if they were faithful in terms of an adaptation, but I would say that the cast was appropriate to this script and the version of the characters that appears in this script. Well, I would tell you that uh, they, except for actually Tara Reid as, as uh, Melody, you know, Melody, uh, except for her, I don't think they looked necessarily as close to the comic uh at, or the cartoon adaptations as you'd look for but I think personality wise they were written fairly well for what you'd expect from the uh, cartoon uh, also I thought the the end uh, the reveal at the end when uh, let's say Alan Cummings as Wyatt and mm -hmm. uh, Parker Posey as Fiona when, when they're revealed to be the villains of the piece oh spoilers by the way everybody uh, and they uh they kind of unmask themselves. I, I thought that was very true to what we get in the cartoons when, you know, 
you have somebody in the, you know, they pull off the mask and it's, oh, it's old man so-and-so from down the road. Uh, you know, that that felt very true to the comics. And like I said, the, the spirit of what we had on the screen seemed very true to what we got in the comic or the cartoon and everything. So I, I, I liked that aspect of it. It is definitely not not highbrow entertainment. Uh, it, it's it, it, you know it's 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 a popcorn movie really. Uh, I found it to be overall you know, pretty entertaining. I, I didn't uh, you know I wasn't bored by it at all. Uh, I liked you know I, I like I liked the way that they delivered their oversimplified message, uh, and I thought it was pretty well written as far as that goes at the start where there's a different band that's being manipulated and the public is being manipulated into being fans of theirs and it's a boy band and you could see they're all starting to get you know very uh aggressive with their egos and then you know it's decided okay we don't need these people anymore so they just crash the plane that they're in uh of course, because of the nature of the movie that we've got, you know, they all survive and come back at the end. Uh, and and then there's the I thought the uh, I thought it was a good line is that they they landed the plane successfully and that wasn't a problem. The only reason they're all like in bandages and stuff is because they landed on a field where there was a Metallica concert and the fans attacked them. So I thought that was I thought that was a, a, an amusing twist and I, I liked that. Uh, but you know the the plot is very simple as far as you know the way it progresses but it didn't have that scratch your head moment where you're saying what the hell are they talking about <laughs> you know which which is definitely i think a danger with movies like this yeah it's it, it's a little bit cheesy and very straightforward but it's also completely unpretentious so it's easy to just run with it. I think that's that's a, a good description of it. I think, and I think that is why it's a comfortable movie to sit down and watch because it is unpretentious. I think if if you know they've done a lot of movies of this nature, you know, and you could vary them on different levels. But like you said, how they uh, you know they wanted to, I guess they wanted to make a movie that kids would like, but they also wanted to appeal to the audience that grew up watching the uh, cartoon or read the comic books. And uh, I, I feel like they, they did that with, you know, the Adams Family and they did it with the Brady Bunch and, you know, different movie adaptations that have been out there. Uh, and, you know, clearly this was an attempt to do this. Do you know if this had been successful, what the next, oh, the next project was Scooby-Doo, you said? Yeah, that one was already in the works and coming. It got reworked to avoid the PG-13 that they blamed on the, or they... I figured the PG-13 was the biggest hit on this one because it was enough that the people who grew up with the cartoon did not feel comfortable bringing their children to a PG-13 film. That may be a valid criticism, honestly. You know, a lot of times when when the studios get involved and they and it, they interrupt the creative process for what they deem to be marketability, a lot of times I think that's an error. In fact, most of the time I think that's an error. Uh, but in this instance, I think that may be an accurate synopsis on this thing. I think had it been rated uh, G, I, I, I don't think that pa that the adults 
who were interested in it would have changed their opinions. Uh, but I'm not sure exactly what you would do to this to make it rated G. It's, yeah, it's, even if they just had PG enough to bring the kids, it would have been a bit of a help. It's, it's not again, incredibly edgy, though. No, I mean, the I think the, the worst is early on during a montage, Melanie has a, a bunch of signs. It'll be, you know, honk if you like this, honk if you like that. And she's ignored for the first couple of signs, but the one that causes a multi-car pileup is where she's got honk if you love pussycats, but the way she's holding the sign and the way that, you know, light standards and stuff are positioned, the word cats is not readable. Right. So it just says honk if you love pussy, and then you get this multi-car pileup of people slamming on the brakes with Melody there. And I think that's that's probably the, the furthest it goes. And even that, I mean, that joke is probably easily changed to make it something that would be deemed more acceptable. Because, I mean, I understand why you don't necessarily want kids saying to their parents, what does that mean? But, you know, I, I'm sure there's, there's some sort of double entendre joke they could put there that, that wouldn't be quite as, you know, scary for kids, or for parents, rather. Uh, there's, there's, I mean, there's no nudity or even real sexual aspect to the movie. Uh, the violence is all very cartoony, so you know what you point out might be the only thing that needs to be, you know, or the only type of thing that would have needed to be toned down slightly to get the uh, more tame rating. And I don't think it would have changed the message that that the movie was sending or the, uh, you know, the the humor involved to speak of. Yeah, and if, I, mean, I don't know if we want to jump to talk about the box office, but I think it's a little unfortunate because this. It didn't do very well at the box office. It was a $39 million budget, and the international gross was about $15 million U.S. So that, it lost a lot of money, which pretty much ended the movie producing career of Babyface. He was one of the producers on this. Now he's only been able to produce other projects. The directors on this, it was uh, co-written and co-directed by Harry Alfont and Deborah Kaplan, who had previously done Can't Hardly Wait. And they haven't been able to work in features since. It took them 15 years to get TV jobs again. And they were blamed for the failure of this movie where, you know, from what we've seen afterwards, if anyone is to blame, it's the studio who said, hey, go make us a PG-13 version of Josie and the Pussycats so that these guys turned in the movie they were asked to make. Yeah, I, I would tend to agree with you. And again, I, I, I think... I think you could have seen early on, unless they think unless they mistakenly thought, and this would be a place where the studio <laughs> was being foolish, unless they mistakenly thought, oh, by getting PG-13, it's still tame enough that parents will take their kids, but they might think it's a little edgy for themselves, which is, I guess, what it, you know, it is what that says. Uh, but I think whatever edginess it had that ranked it to PG-13, to eliminate that, I don't think would have changed the movie all that much. No, it's actually pretty minor changes. I haven't seen the PG edit, but there is a PG edit available on DVD. It wasn't sold as, you know, both in one case. So I chose the PG-13 version, but there were on the shelf. I remember when I picked it up, you could buy a PG version or a PG-13 version. You'd have to be a real completist to do that, huh? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, 
I didn't need both versions. I was like, well, you know, I'll just take essentially the director's cut because I'm sure, you know, at the time I figured IMDb is out there. Someone will have the alternate versions listed. I'm sure. And then you probably, it probably wouldn't take much of a search to, to see, you know, a listing of what was changed to make it PG. Uh, yeah, actually looking at it here, uh, the PG version is full screen only. So it's only the 4x3. And they removed the honk if you lock, if you love pussycats piece. And they did voiceovers where two times when the bad guys are ranting and they use some foul language, they just double on top. Yeah, so, so again, the, the again, dialogue you hear doesn't match the lip sync, but that's it. And, so and, it's, I'm sorry, go ahead. Sorry, yeah, it's it feels like they were going for PG and turned in PG-13 because that's what the studios asked for because it's just barely enough to go over that line. Yeah, and, and it's, it seems like the dubbing of the language is virtually nothing, you know, as far as changing the film. Uh, and, and you could have even CGI'd out the word pussy and put something else that wouldn't have been quite as obvious of, of a double entendre. And, and if you probably could have gotten it to PG then. And I don't know if it would have done you know, better box office-wise than that, because I don't know how much the audience... You know, where Archie or Scooby-Doo were, you know, in in the uh, the mindset of people who grew up in that era, I'm not so sure that Josie and the Pussycats ever really was. So I don't know that this is the one you start out with. I, I think they would have been better off going with Scooby-Doo first and maybe having a uh, some sort of cameo appearance of Josie and the Pussycats in that... And then branching off to, to Josie and the Pussycats from there. I, I think, you know, uh, or, you know Scooby-Doo was a, a far more popular show in the early 70s than, uh, than Josie and the Pussycats ever was. Yeah, starting with this would be like, you know, starting to build a Marvel movie universe with Blade instead of an X-Men or Spider-Man. Which, I mean, they did kind of do that and those were successful, but... Yeah, I think they, the Blade movies absolutely were successful and they exceeded expectations, be, partly because marketing research people have this idea that African Americans don't go to movies much, so they don't bother polling them and they base their expectations on what white people said with their <laughs> interest levels, which is a whole other ridiculous ball of wax. But as far as I understand it, black people's money is the same as white people's money, and they should <laughs> to market things to everybody. Yeah, it, it's actually misunderstanding the, the racism from when they started doing focus groups and said, hmm, we're making all these great movies that black people don't want to come see. I guess black people just don't like movies. Like, um, no, you don't understand the market, and your movies don't appeal to them. That's the issue. But anyway, yeah, we'll just... Setting that aside, um, yeah, while Blade, those movies were successful, a lot of people I know who love them were surprised to find out after the Marvel Comics brought right? the Marvel Comics, they were going to see the Wesley Vampires. I could see that because those came out and they weren't marketed based on that adaptation. They low-keyed it's a comic adaptation. Uh, at the time, and they, you know, they definitely changed it, but they change everything when they put it on screen. So, you know, but those movies, again, even I don't, I don't remember the timeline as far as what came out when, as far as the X Men, Spider Man, and Blade. But even 
even if the timeline is that the uh, X-Men and Spider-Man came out first, Blade was not, you know, was not uh, promoted based on, hey, here's another comic product. You know, like, you know, like we're saying, it, it's, it was just kind of put out as a Wesley Snipes movie, uh, which was probably smart at the time because Wesley Snipes was, uh, you know, very, very popular at the time. Uh, and the biggest key is they were well made. And, and people saw them and thought, you know, I, I want to see more of this. So then we, you know, ended up with a trilogy, although uh, it, it's that's a funny trilogy and I don't want to go too far afield, but I felt like the first movie was good, the second movie was better, and then the third movie kind of brings it down a little again. Uh, so it kind of had a, uh, you know, peaked in the middle. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see what they do with Blade now. I, I didn't see where that falls on the schedule of releases, but uh, I know that they're making a new Blade. Yeah, I just looked up to get the, the release date for the first Blade, and the IMDb search says that there's a new one in 2023. The original was 1998. Uh, the first X-Men was the year 2000. I missed it in theaters because I was doing my Masters in Europe. Um, and then Spider-Man, I think, was 2001, because for that one I was back in Canada. Okay, so Blade was first of, of that bunch. Of that bunch, yeah. It was the second Marvel theatrical feature film following Howard the Duck. Yeah, which was a huge hit. Anyway. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that box office mojo page explains why there was, I think, a 13-year gap between Howard the Duck and the second Marvel box office. <laughs> or Marvel feature. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's not... There's some direct-to-videos in between, but not in theaters. It, it doesn't take somebody with a master's degree to figure that one out. <laughs> uh... <laughs> But, you know, again, I, I think they probably overrated the core audience for this. And then when you put it to PG-13, you start eliminating the fact that people who aren't part of the core audience might just go see it for the heck of it. Yeah, I would agree. I think in the long term, probably the most successful aspect of this is the soundtrack, believe it or not, which went gold in six weeks when it came out in 2001 and was re-released on vinyl about three or four years ago. Hmm. I, I had no idea that that was so popular. What did you think of all the music in this? I actually enjoyed it. it, it it's pretty similar. So, you know, I picked up the soundtrack because I enjoyed it after watching the movie and enjoyed listening to it. But if you haven't listened to it a lot, you when you hear it, you say, oh, that's the Josie and the Pussycats soundtrack. But you might have to listen for a few more seconds to say, okay, now which song is it from the soundtrack? Because they're very much of a piece, and there's a very similar tone and feel to it. But again, it's like the movie. It's a lot of, you know, it, it's just a fun little ride, but it's not super challenging. You know, it's you're not going to be sitting down like you would with, say, a Bob Dylan album. <laughs> analyzing the lyrics and figuring what the hidden messages are. Now, the message is very surface level all the way through. Yeah, I, I mean, it wasn't necessarily my style of music. And, you know, I, while I took note of the soundtrack, because obviously that's a key in this movie is, you know, the, the whole idea that they're a pop band, uh, I did not notice at any point the score. Um, did you take note of that at all? Or no? um, I know that you often talk about it, so rewatching it for this, I kind of acknowledge that the score exists. Um, 
I honestly coming in, I couldn't remember if there were any scenes that were just flat out scored with instrumental music or if it was only the soundtrack. And I would say there's maybe 10 to 15 minutes of just straight up score that I only noticed because I was listening for it after multiple viewings. So yeah, it's there, but it does not stand out in any way, shape or form. It, 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 it definitely did not stand out for me. And, and again, the music isn't really my style. So the only, the only song that I particularly lifted my head a little bit when it was on was when they, you know, when the end credits are on and they do the Josie and the Pussycats theme song, uh, which is written, credited to uh, William Hanna, Joseph Barbera, and Hoyt Curtin. I'm not sure who Hoyt Curtin is. Uh, he, he probably, he's, my, my guess is that he wrote the song and Hannah and Barbera just said, yeah, you put our names on it too. Yeah, or in that era, often the, you know, it might have been Hannah and Barbera came up with the lyrics and said, okay, put music under this. Yeah, something like that. Uh, yeah, there's that one. Um, I also, I mean, the one song that has a little bit of depth to it, I thought was the, the Backdoor Lover, which is the du jour thing, which uh, I've always wondered, was that supposed to be subtly hinting that the guys in this band are all gay that could be reading too much into that that's certainly a possibility but yeah I, I, I don't know if they got that deep uh, but yeah I, I mean anything's possible there uh, the movie did open to bad reviews uh, the one review I see quoted here is Roger Ebert who gave it uh, one half of a star out of four and then commented, Josie and the Pussycats are not dumber than the Spice Girls, but they are as dumb as the Spice Girls, which is dumb enough. Uh, and I do remember when when Spice World came out, uh, two of my nieces who are now adults with children, but at the time were you know, you know younger kids, that they had the video of Spice World and they were into it. Uh, but I saw like, you know, maybe 20 seconds of the whole thing. Uh, I do remember thinking it was kind of dumb, but you know, it was, it was, that was something that was geared towards younger kids. Uh, I think that was marketed to younger kids and probably marketed better. Uh, I don't know. I'm just going to take a quick look to see if Spice World was a success. Yes, it was. The budget was 25 million and the box office was 100 million. So that was obviously much more successfully marketed to uh, kids who I'm, I'm guessing were somewhere between the ages of 8 and 12 at the time that that came out. Uh, and this movie, is, I, I guess, easily could have been marketed to that audience, but really wasn't. I think they, again, I think they misfired uh, in a thought that the people who were, you know, between the ages of 25 and 35 or 25 and 40 uh, would have kids and, and say, ooh, Josie and the Pussycats, I remember that. Let's go see it. Yeah, and I think some of that looking at the the Daily Box office here, this was released the Wednesday before Easter weekend in 2001. And working at a theater, sometimes, yeah, the major holidays, we get a lot of families coming in as sort of the, the family-friendly thing to do. So I think that opening weekend was a lackluster partly because of that and going back to it it's weird um so our christmas eve matinee and new year's eve would be by far the two busiest days of the year 
Easter weekend, we didn't get a lot of that because the Easter activities, there's more outdoor stuff. There's the egg hunts. Those didn't seem to drive the the families coming in to watch it. So I'm wondering how much of that was just mistimed. Maybe releasing it one weekend earlier or later might have been better for it. Yeah, you know, I, I think, I mean, and I'm doing this with no, uh, no, no support as far as numbers go. But I would think the spring is probably the worst time to remove what you're hoping to have a blockbuster because it is so easy to be outside because the weather is nice and it's also people are wanting to be outside because they've been cooped up for the winter. Uh, I think that's why, you know, the Christmas releases have been a big thing. And I think the summer releases are a big thing because it often gets so hot that you don't want to be out and you think, oh, we could go to, especially back when air conditioning wasn't as prevalent as it is now, you can go to the movie theater and sit in a nice cool area and watch the movie. Uh, but this, you know, in the spring when Easter hits, I would just think that's, that's pro- again, without any uh, statistical backing, I'm thinking that's probably the biggest lull in the movie attendance. When you worked in a theater, did you kind of find that or you don't know or whatever? Uh, the, the biggest lull is usually between New Year's and Valentine's. But a lot of that is because studios decided that people weren't going at that time of year. So they had the, the data for it. So they just stopped releasing their best product in that time. And that's kind of the dregs that they don't think are strong enough to compete with anything else. So sort of the award season is done because they're trying to get the award ones out by the end of the year. So those are often out through that Christmas week. And then they don't release a lot of major product until Valentine's when people are going out on dates again and and you so, would it makes sense also good. that uh that there would be a lull then because in the time when school is out around christmas and up to new year's uh you know a lot of stay-at-home parents would probably take their kids to the movies and uh then school starts again you know right after new year's and you think okay now it's back to you know back to business as usual we're not going to the movies now yeah, and a lot of it, frankly, the disposable income that you have in January often goes to paying off the Christmas credit cards. So you're not <laughs> spending extra money in theaters because you're still paying off Christmas. Yeah, good point. That's, you know, I'm sure there's a whole plethora of points that they look at for analysis on this to figure out when the right time to release something is uh, and yeah. frequently probably screw up and release things at the wrong time. <laughs> But... Yeah, I mean, looking at this, um, it was coming in second place in the box office each weekend for the first three weekends of release. And then weekends four and five, it dropped to third. So, yeah, it is respectable. I wanted to... Okay, that and looking at that that release there. So yeah, Josie and the Pussycats was coming in number two, but it was also going head-to-head with Spy Kids. Okay, so, so, so it's a similar audience. Yeah, they had a better marketed movie targeted at that same audience that came out the same weekend. Okay, yeah, that, that's going to hurt them some. Uh, but there wasn't a blockbuster that came out at that point, apparently, either. Uh, it, it's, 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 it's an interesting comparison. Uh, anything yeah, else? I mean, it, oh, go ahead. Sorry, yeah, it was... Up against Spy Kids, Blow, Along Came a Spider, Joe Dirt, Kingdom Come. And Spy Kids was in week three, 
so they weren't it wasn't a new release but that was still taking number one at the box office the what new was... releases that weekend were Joe Dirt, Kingdom Come and Josie and the Pussycats okay it's I mean it's uh, not a blockbuster in the bunch let's put it that way <laughs> No, although uh, one thing it does have in common with Joe Dirt is the, you know, the soundtrack is strong. Although with Joe Dirt's, it's not original. It has compiled really good songs and attached them to a really bad movie. And I am totally unfamiliar with Joe Dirt. I'm just taking a quick look now. Uh, I do remember. I do remember the ad. And, and uh, David Spade. Okay. Uh, <laughs> You know, it just just makes just seeing like the movie posters and all. I I am sometimes. Do you ever see like when they when they have a parody where they talk about old people being uh, nostalgic for things that are like kind of dopey? Uh, I am nostalgic for the days back when newspapers were big, the internet didn't exist, and you would actually have a movie section in the newspaper where they would have all the ads. I think that may predate you to some extent, even. But, um, I used to call the studios as part of my job working at the theater once I got that promotion to supervisor I was the guy calling them to negotiate to help them pay for those newspaper ads okay I used to I used to enjoy that I mean and, and it was repetitive because you know each day in the newspaper you would have the same movies effectively uh, but it would have a little you know a little mini version of the movie poster in black and white in the newspaper and again i i'm not saying it was better then because of that i'm not that foolish but i do have a nostalgia for it uh okay so is there anything else on this movie that we should uh break down before we give our ratings uh, nothing comes to mind i think we hit the key points Okay, I'm going to give mine, and then I'm going to let you give yours since you recommended this. So I'm going to throw my rating out there first. Uh, I'm going to give it a Jaws 3. Uh, and I'm going to give it a Jaws 3 based on my own personal take for it. Because it's not a movie that I'm ever going to want to rewatch. although I did find it kind of entertaining. There was nothing wrong with it. It was not a bad movie. If you are a big fan of any of the actors in this movie, if you're a big fan of the... Uh, you know the the uh, property of Josie and the Pussycats. It probably could bump itself up to a a lower Jaws two, uh, but for me it fell as a Jaws three, and and it was not Jaws three where where I was groaning that I was watching it in any way. It's not Jaws three where I couldn't pay attention to it. It was just Jaws three because it was mildly entertaining, and I'm not bothered that I watched it. But you know I'll just move on now, and it's probably something that will that I will forget. Um, okay, yeah, and I would think, I mean, to me, if I think of rewatchability in terms of the Jaws rating, so, you know, Jaws 1 is where I would schedule the rewatch, Jaws 2 is, you know, where I might rewatch it, but not really plan to rewatch it, and Jaws 3 is the once is enough, I would say that this is the weak Jaws 2, because it's something I've gone back to just as that, you know, zero calorie fun thing. It's the kind of thing where, you know, it's nice to watch it in detail the first time because there are some subtle visual gags. But after that, it's a nice one to have on in the background while you're getting other work done. So, yeah, I don't, I don't necessarily disagree. Uh, and yeah. by the way, the... So the, I, I think we are, we're agreeing that it's either a strong Jaws 3 or a weak Jaws 2, and we just each pick the different sides. 
Yeah, just as as the uh, subtle visual gags at the beginning. Early on, you see somebody in the background, the redhead dude with a, a, a letter sweater with the letter R on it. So obviously that's Archie Andrews, and that's kind of a cool little visual thing to throw in there. Yeah, or little things when the subliminal messages kick in and Melanie the vegetarian suddenly decides she, she wants a hamburger. Later on, there's a scene where you know, we, we see her shower, and now she's got McDonald's logo stickers all over the shower stalls. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it, it, it's definitely not a bad film. I'm, I'm going to, you know, it's, it's damning it with faint praise, I guess, but I'm going to give it that. Yeah, it's not hard to come up with worse films that did better at the box office. I think this just was released at the wrong time, because going through everything else that was coming out, if you want a PG-13 comedy, Heartbreakers was in week three. If you want a family film, Spy Kids was in week two. It just had... That a lot going against it. So if it didn't have a really strong marketing campaign, it wasn't going to break through, and it just didn't happen. So I I don't think it should have been the career ender it was for some people. Even Rachel Lee Cook and Tara Reid had a hard time getting work after this. So did Rosario Dawson, but she was the first to bounce back. Even though it it took her a couple of years. This this hurt a lot of careers, and I don't think that that effect was deserved. I, I it's, agree with it's you. It's fine. There. I think it's not spectacular, but it's fine. I think if if and you know I am not a a, a studio professional, but I think if I was going to try and uh, market this, I probably would have tied it into the cartoon more. I think I might have had an ad where you had the cartoon characters and then slowly morph them into the live action or something like that. But anyway, uh, thanks for coming on, Blaine. And my dog is going insane. So I'm going <laughs> to make the ending quickly, but I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, and before we walk away, why don't you just tell everybody where they can find you? Uh, my podcasts are all hosted through Bureau42.com. So the ones I have active right now, there's an old-time radio show, which is uh, going to be running Duffy's Tavern for a while, which was created by the father of one of the co-creators of Cheers, and you can see a lot of that early Cheers DNA, or a lot of the Duffy's Tavern DNA coming into early Cheers. Uh, it's also referenced heavily on The Simpsons. The, the slogan for Duffy's Tavern is where the elite meet to eat, and then most Tavern is where the elite meet to drink, and it features Duff beer. So <laughs> those are Duffy's Tavern references. Uh, so it's, I always wonder if, if The Simpsons got Duff beer from that. Yeah, with with the way Mo answers the phone and this slogan, I think that's very likely. Because it's just the slogans are too similar. Right. Yeah. Um, so there's that, and then the other one I have running is 99 Years 100 Films, which Paul has guested on more than once and may guest on again. Where we are, or and by we, it's myself and Trey Hooks are going through every Best Picture winner from the Academy Awards, uh, one per month until we go through the first 100 winners, which will come from the first 99 ceremonies. Um, I also have uh, Bedtime in the Public Domain, which has been harder to get done where I'm reading books in the public domain. Uh, But yes, since I became a father, that's been tougher and tougher to schedule. So the next book out at the time of this recording is going to be The War of the Worlds. I've got the first three chapters recorded, but I don't know how long it's going to take to get through that. 
And then I've got another podcasting project with uh, John M. Wilson starting in January 2024, where we are going to go through every episode of Babylon 5 and the spin-off Crusade, as well as the made-for-TV movies. Uh, in almost all cases, we're doing it exactly 30 years after the original release. The exceptions are The Gathering is being pushed a little bit later, and Paul joined us for that conversation. And then the last two direct-to-DVD releases we're going to release more quickly rather than make people wait four or five years between episodes of the podcast. Two, two thoughts occurred to me as you were going over that is the first one is I really enjoyed being on with you guys for the gathering, but I probably will not be a guest on the show <laughs> because uh, my thoughts are that as you're doing your episodes, I'm going to watch along, which kind of makes it hard for me to, you know, when you record so much in advance, it's going to make it hard for me to to manage to be on with you again, unless there's an episode that works as a standalone that you invite me as a guest for. Uh, the other, the other thing was when you were talking about the uh, books, and you said, you know, since I took, became a father, and I just thought it would have been funny if the next book we're going to cover is Hop on Pop or something along those lines. But anyway, uh, yeah, I, I, I'm, I'm a fan of Blaine's uh, shows, and obviously heartily endorse them to everybody, uh, but. Once again, Blaine, thanks for coming on with me and covering this movie, and I look forward to our next time to talk. Oh, thanks for having me. And thank you, everybody, for listening, and we'll catch you next time. Susie and the Pussycats Long tails and ears for hats